Section nine of Red Men and White. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Red Men and White by Owen Wister. Section nine. The Second Missouri Compromise. Part two. Part two. Captain Paisley walked slowly from the adjutant's office at Boise Barracks to his quarters, and his orderly walked behind him. The captain carried a letter in his hand, and the orderly, though distant a respectful ten paces, could hear him swearing plain as day. When he reached his front door, Mrs. Paisley met him. "'Jim!' cried she. Two more chickens froze in the night.' and the delighted orderly heard the captain so plainly that he had to blow his nose or burst. The lady, merely remarking, "'My goodness, Jim!' retired immediately to the kitchen, where she had a soldier cook baking, and feared he was not quite sober enough to do it alone. The captain had paid eighty dollars for forty hens this year at Boise, and twenty-nine had now passed away, victims to the climate. His wise wife perceived his extreme language not to have been all on account of hens, however, but he never allowed her to share in his professional worries, so she stayed safe with the baking, and he sat in the front room with a cigar in his mouth. Boise was a two-company post without a major, and Paisley, being senior captain, was in command an office to which he did not object. But his duties so far this month of May had not pleased him in the least. Theoretically, you can have at a two-company post the following responsible people. One major, two captains, four lieutenants, a doctor, and a chaplain. The major has been spoken of. It is almost needless to say that the chaplain was on leave and had never been seen at Boise by any of the present garrison. Two of the lieutenants were also on leave, and two on surveying details. They had influence at Washington. The other captain was on a scout with General Crook somewhere near the Malheur Agency, and the doctor had only arrived this week. There had resulted a period when Captain Paisley was his own adjutant, quartermaster, and post-surgeon, with not even an efficient sergeant to rely upon. And during this period his wife had stayed a good deal in the kitchen. Happily the doctor's coming had given relief to the hospital steward and several patients, and to the captain not only an equal but an old friend with whom to pour out his disgust, and together every evening they freely expressed their opinion of the War Department and its treatment of the Western Army. There were steps at the door, and Paisley hurried out. Only you, he exclaimed, with such frank vexation, that the doctor laughed loudly. Come in, man, come in, Paisley continued, leading him strongly by the arm, sitting him down and giving him a cigar. "'Here's a pretty howdy-do. "'More Indians?' inquired Dr. Tuck. "'Bother! They're nothing. It's senators, counselors, whatever the territorial devils call themselves.' "'Gone on the war-path?' the doctor said, 
quite ignorant how nearly he had touched the council. "'Precisely, man. Warpath. Here's the governor writing me they'll be scalping him in the State House at twelve o'clock. It's past eleven-thirty. They'll be wetting knives about now.' And the captain roared. "'I know you haven't gone crazy,' said the doctor. "'But who has?' "'The lot of them. Ballard's a good man. And—' "'What's his name, the little secretary? "'The balance are just mad dogs, mad dogs. "'Look here, dear captain,' that's Ballard to me, I just got it, "'I find myself unexpectedly hampered this morning. "'The South shows signs of being too solid. "'Unless I am supported, my plan for bringing our legislature to terms "'will have to be postponed.' Hewley and I are more likely to be brought to terms ourselves, a bad precedent to establish in Idaho. Noon is the hour for drawing salaries. Ask me to supper as quick as you can, and act on my reply. I've asked him, continued Paisley, but I haven't told Mrs. Paisley to cook anything extra yet. The captain paused to roar again, shaking Tuck's shoulder for sympathy. Then he explained the situation in Idaho to the justly bewildered doctor. Ballard had confided many of his difficulties lately to Paisley. "'He means you're to send troops?' Tuck inquired. "'What else should the poor man mean?' "'Are you sure it's constitutional?' "'Hang constitutional! What do I know about their legal quibbles at Washington? But Paisley—' They're unsurrendered rebels, I tell you, never signed a parole. But the general amnesty— Bother general amnesty! Ballard represents the federal government in this territory, and Uncle Sam's army is here to protect the federal government. If Ballard calls on the army, it's our business to obey, and if there's any mistake in judgment, it's Ballard's, not mine which was sound soldier common sense, and happened to be equally good law. This is not always the case. "'You haven't got any force to send,' said Tuck. This was true. General Crook had taken with him both Captain Sinclair's infantry and the troop, or company as cavalry was also then called, of the first. A detail of five or six with a reliable non-commissioned officer will do to remind them it's the United States they're bucking against, said Paisley. There's a deal in the moral of these things. Crook, Paisley broke off and ran to the door. Hold his horse, he called out to the orderly, for he had heard the hoofs and was out of the house before Corporal Jones had fairly arrived. So Jones sprang off and hurried up, saluting. He delivered his message. Um, umpra. What? What's that? Is is it imperative? You mean? Suggested Paisley. Ah, yes, sir," said Jones, reforming his pronunciation of that unaccustomed word. He said it twice. It. What were they doing? Blamed if I beg the captain's pardon. They looked like they was waiting for me to get out. Go on. Go on. How many were there? Seven, sir. There was Governor Ballard and Mr. Hewley, and—well, them's all the names I know. But—Jones hastened on with eagerness—I've saw them five other fellows before at a—at—' 
The corporal's voice failed, and he stood looking at the captain. Well, where? At a cockfight, sir, murmured Jones, casting his eyes down. A slight sound came from the room where Tuck was seated, listening, and Paisley's round gray eyes rolled once, then steadied themselves fiercely upon Jones. Did you notice anything further unusual, Corporal? No, sir, except they was excited in there. Looked like they might be going to have considerable roughhouse. A fuss, I mean, sir. Two was in their socks. Accounted four guns on a table. Take five men and go at once to the State House. If the Governor needs assistance, you will give it. But do nothing hasty. Stop trouble and make none. You've got twenty minutes. Captain, if anybody needs arrestin', you must be judge of that. Paisley went into the house. There was no time for particulars. Snakes, remarked Jones. He jumped on his horse and dashed down the slope to the men's quarters. Crook may be here any day or any hour, said Paisley, returning to the doctor. With two companies in the background, I think Price's left wing will subside this morning. Supposing they don't. I'll go myself, and when it gets to Washington that the commanding officer at Boise personally interfered with the legislature of Idaho, it'll shock em to that extent that the government will have to pay for a special commission of investigation and two tons of red tape. I've got to trust to that corporal's good sense. I haven't another man at the post. Corporal Jones had three-quarters of a mile to go, and it was ten minutes before noon, so he started his five men at a run. His plan was to walk and look quiet as soon as he reached the town, and thus excite no curiosity. The citizens were accustomed to the sight of passing soldiers. Jones had thought out several things, and he was not going to order bayonets fixed until the final necessary moment. Stop trouble and make none was firm in his mind. He had not long been a corporal. It was still his first enlistment. His habits were by no means exemplary, and his frontier personality, strongly developed by six years of vagabonding before he enlisted, was scarcely yet disciplined into the military machine of the regulation pattern that it should and must become before he could be counted a model soldier. His captain had promoted him to steady him, if that could be, and to give his better qualities a chance. Since then he had never been drunk at the wrong time. Two years ago it would not have entered his freelance heart to be reticent with any man, high or low, about any pleasure in which he saw fit to indulge. Today he had been shy over confessing to the commanding officer his leaning to cockfights, a sign of his approach to the correct mental attitude of the enlisted man. Being corporal had wakened in him a new instinct and this state-house affair was the first chance he had had to show himself. He gave the order to proceed at a walk in such a tone that one of the troopers whispered to another, Specimen ain't going to forget he's wearing a chevron. Part 3 
The brief silence that Jones and his invitation to supper had caused among the counsellors was first broken by F. Jackson Gillette. "'Gentlemen,' he said, "'as President of the Council, I rejoice in an interruption that has given pause to our haste, and saved us from ill-considered expressions of opinion. The Governor has, I confess, surprised me. Before examining the legal aspect of our case, I will ask the Governor if he is familiar with the sundry statutes applicable." "'I think so,' Ballard replied pleasantly. "'I had supposed,' continued the President of the Council, "'nay, I had congratulated myself that our weightier tasks of law-making, and so forth, were consummated yesterday, our thirty-ninth day, and that our friendly game of last night would be, as it were, the finis that crowned with pleasure the work of a session memorable for its harmony. This was not wholly accurate, but near enough. The governor had vetoed several bills, but Price's left wing had had much more than the required two-thirds vote of both houses to make these bills laws over the governor's head this may be called harmony in a manner. Gillette now went on to say that any doubts which the governor entertained concerning the legality of his paying any salaries could easily be settled without entering upon discussion. Discussion, at such a juncture, could not but tend towards informality. The president of the council could well remember most unfortunate discussions in Missouri between the years 1856 and 1860, in some of which he had had the honor to take part. Many me pause, gentlemen. Here he digressed elegantly upon civil dissensions, and Ballard, listening to him and marking the slow, sure progress of the hour, told himself that never before had Gillette's oratory seemed more welcome or less lengthy. A plan had come to him, the orator next announced, a way out of the present dilemma, simple and regular in every aspect. Let some gentleman present now kindly draft a bill, setting forth in its preamble the acts of Congress providing for the legislature's compensation, and let this bill in conclusion provide that all members immediately receive the full amount due for their services. At noon both houses would convene. They would push back the clock and pass this bill before the term of their session should expire. Then, Governor, said Gillette, you can amply vindicate yourself by a veto, which together with our votes on reconsideration of your objection will be recorded in the journal of our proceedings, and copies transmitted to Washington within thirty days as required by law. Thus, sir, will you become absolved from all responsibility." The orator's face, while he explained this simple and regular way out of the dilemma, beamed with acumen and statesmanship. Here they would make a law, and the governor must obey the law. Nothing could have been more to Ballard's mind, as he calculated the fleeting minutes, than this peaceful, pompous farce. "'Draw your bill, gentlemen,' he said. "'I would not object if I could.'" The statutes of the United States were procured from among the pistols, and opened at the proper page. 
Gascon Claiborne, upon another sheet of paper headed Territory of Idaho Council Chamber, set about formulating some phrases which began whereas, and Gratiot des Prairies read aloud to him from the statutes. Ballard conversed apart with Hewley. In fact, there was much conversing aside. 3rd March, 1863, C-117, S-8, V-12, P-8-11, dictated Des Skip the chapters and sections, said Cleburne. We only require the date. 3rd March, 1863, the sessions of the legislative assemblies of the several territories of the United States shall be limited to forty days' duration. Wise provision, that, whispered Ballard, no telling how long a poker game might last. But Hewley could not take anything in this spirit. Genuine business was not got through till yesterday, he said. The members of each branch of the legislature, read this prayers, shall receive a compensation of six dollars per day during the sessions herein provided for, and they shall receive such mileage as now provided by law provided that the president of the council and the speaker of the house of representatives shall each receive a compensation of ten dollars a day at this the president of the council waved a deprecatory hand to signify that it was a principle not profit for which he battled they had completed their whereases incorporating the language of the several sections as to how the appropriation should be made who dispersed such money, mileage, and, in short, all things pertinent to their bill, when Pete Coffin made a suggestion. "'Ain't there anything about how much the governor gets?' he asked. "'And the secretary?' added Wingo. "'Oh, you can leave us out,' said Ballard. "'Pardon me, governor,' said Gillette. "'You stated that your difficulty was not confined to Mr. Wingo or any individual gentleman.' but was general. Does it not apply to yourself, sir? Do you not need any bill?" "'Oh, no,' said Ballard, laughing. "'I don't need any bill.' "'And why not?' said Coffin. "'You've just as much earned your money as us fellows.' "'Quite as much,' said Ballard. "'But we're not alike at present.' Gillette grew very stately. "'Except certain differences in political opinion, sir, I am not aware of how we differ in mad as public servants of this territory. The difference is of your own making, Mr. Gillette, and no bill you could frame could cure it or destroy my responsibility. You cannot make any law contrary to a law of the United States. Contrary to a law of the United States? And what, sir, has the United States to say about my pay I have earned in Idaho? Mr. Gillette, there has been but one government in this country since April 1865, and as friends you and I have often agreed to differ as to how many there were before then. That government has a law compelling people like you and me to go through a formality, which I have done, and you and your friends have refused to do each time it has been suggested to you. I have raised no point until now, having my reasons, which were mainly that it would make less trouble now for the territory of which I have been appointed governor. 
I am held accountable to the Secretary of the Treasury semi-annually for the manner in which the appropriation has been expended. If you will kindly hand me that book." Gillette, more and more stately, handed Ballard the statutes, which he had taken from Despere. The others were watching Ballard with gathering sullenness, as they had watched Hewley while he was winning Wingo's money, only now the sullenness was of a more decided complexion. Ballard turned the pages. 2nd July, 1862. Every person elected or appointed to any office of honor or profit, either in the civil, military, or naval service, shall before entering upon the duties of such office, and before being entitled to any salary or other emoluments thereof, take and subscribe the following oath. I—' "'What does this mean, sir?' said Gillette. "'It means there is no difference in our positions as to what preliminaries the law requires of us, no matter how we may vary in convictions. I, as Governor, have taken the oath of allegiance to the United States, and you, as Counselor, must do the same before you can get your pay. Look at the book. I decline, sir. I repudiate your proposition. There is a wide difference in our positions. What do you understand it to be, Mr. Gillette? Ballard's temper was rising. If you have chosen to take an oath that did not go against your convictions— Oh, Mr. Gillette, said Ballard, smiling, look at the book. He would not risk losing his temper through further discussion. He would stick to the law as it lay open before them. But the northern smile sent Missouri logic to the winds. And what are you superior to me, sir, that I cannot choose? Who are you that I and these gentlemen must take oaths before you? Not before me. Look at the book. I'll look at no book, sir. Do you mean to tell me you have seen me day after day and meditated this treacherous attempt? There is no attempt and no treachery, Mr. Gillette. You could have taken the oath long ago, like other officials. You can take it to-day, or take the consequences. What? You threaten me, sir? Do I understand you to threaten me? Gentlemen of the Council, it seems Idaho will be less free than Missouri unless we look to it. The President of the Council had risen in his indignant oratorical might, and his more and more restless friends glared admiration at him. "'When was the time that Price's left wing surrendered?' asked the orator. "'Never! Others have, be it said, to their shame. We have not toiled these thousand miles for that. Others have crooked the pliant hinges of the knee that thrift might follow fawning. As for myself, two grandfathers who fought for our liberties rest in the soil of Virginia, and two uncles who fought in the Revolution sleep in the land of the dark and bloody ground. With such blood in my veins I will never, never, never submit to northern rule and dictation. I will risk all to be with the southern people, and if defeated I can with a patriot of old exclaim, more true joy and exile feels than Caesar with a senate at his heels. 
Ah, gentlemen, and we will not be defeated. Our rights are here and are ours. He stretched his arms towards the treasurer's strong box, and his enthusiastic audience rose at the rhetoric. Contain yourselves, gentlemen, said the orator. Twelve o'clock, and our bill. I've said my say, said Ballard, remaining seated. And what'll ye do? inquired Pete Cawthon from the agitated group. I forbid you to touch that, shouted Ballard. He saw Wingo moving towards the box. Gentlemen, do not resort, began Gillette. But small, iron-gray Hewley snatched his pistol from the box and sat down astraddle of it, guarding his charge. At this hostile movement the others precipitated themselves towards the table where lay their weapons, and Governor Ballard, whipping his own from his armhole, said, as he covered the table, "'Go easy, gentlemen. Don't hurt our treasurer.' "'Don't nobody hurt anybody,' said Specimen Jones, opening the door. This prudent corporal had been looking in at a window, and hearing plainly for the past two minutes, and he had his men posted. Each member of the council stopped as he stood, his pistol not quite yet attained. Ballard restored his own to its armhole, and sat in his chair. Little Hewley sat on his box, and F. Jackson Gillette towered haughtily, gazing at the intruding blue uniform of the United States. "'I'll have to take you to the commanding officer,' said Jones briefly to Hewley. "'You and your box.' "'Oh, my stars and stripes, but that's a keen move,' rejoiced Ballard to himself. "'He's arresting us.' In Jones's judgment, after he had taken in the situation, this had seemed the only possible way to stop trouble without making any, and therefore, even now, bayonets were not fixed. Best not ruffle Price's left wing just now, if you could avoid it. For a new corporal it was well thought and done. But it was high noon, the clock not pushed back, and punctual representatives strolling innocently towards their expected pay. There must be no time for a gathering and possible reaction. I'll have to clear this state house out, Jones decided. We're making an arrest, he said aloud, and we want a little room. The outside bystanders stood back obediently but the councillors delayed. Their pistols were, with Ballard's and Hewley's, of course, in custody. Here, said Jones, restoring them, go home now. The commanding officer's waitin' for the prisoner. Put your boots on, sir, and leave, he added to Pete Cawthon, who still stood in his stockings. I don't want to have to disperse anybody more what I've done. Disconcerted Price's left wing, now saw file out between armed soldiers the treasurer and his strong-box, and thus guarded they were brought to Boise Barracks, whence they did not reappear. The governor also went to the post. After delivering Hewley and his treasure to the commanding officer, Jones, with his five troopers, went to the sutler's store and took a drink at Jones' expense. Then one of them asked the corporal to have another but Jones refused. "'If a man drinks much of that,' said he, and the whiskey certainly was of a livid, unlikely flavor, he's liable to go home and steal his own pants.' 
He walked away to his quarters, and as he went they heard him thoughtfully humming his most inveterate song, Ye shepherds tell me have ye seen my flora pass this way. But poisonous whiskey was not the inner reason for his moderation. He felt very much like a responsible corporal today, and the troopers knew it. Jones has done himself a good turn in this fuss, they said. He'll be changing his chevron. That afternoon the legislature sat in the State House and read to itself in the statutes all about oaths. It is not believed that any of them sat up another night. Sleeping on a problem is often much better. Next morning the commanding officer and Governor Ballard were called upon by F. Jackson Gillette and the Speaker of the House. Everyone was civil and hearty as possible. Gillette pronounced the captain's whiskey equal to any at the southern St. Louis, and conversed for some time about the cold season, General Crook's remarkable astuteness in dealing with Indians, and other topics of public interest. "'And concerning your difficulty yesterday, Governor,' said he, "'I've been consulting the law, sir, and I perceive your construction is entirely correct. And so the legislature signed that form of oath prescribed for participants in the late rebellion, and Hewley did not have to wait for his poker money. He and Wingo played many subsequent games, for, as they all said in referring to the matter, a little thing like that should never stand between friends. Thus was accomplished by Ballard, Paisley, and Jones, the second Missouri Compromise, at Boise City, Idaho, 1867, an eccentric moment in the eccentric years of our development westward, and historic also. That it has gone unrecorded until now is because of Ballard's modesty, Paisley's preference for the sword, and Jones's hatred of the pen. He was never known to write except later in the pages of his company roster, and such unavoidable official places, for the troopers were prophetic. In not many months there was no longer a Corporal Jones, but a person widely known as Sergeant Jones of Company A, called also the Singing Sergeant, but still familiar to his intimate friends as Specimen. End of section 9